Amen. You putting in that kingdom work. Praise God. I love kingdom work. How many are working and twerking for the Lord today? Amen. Not twerking in a bad way, but you're moving that body in a good way. Amen. Dropping it like it's hot. Dropping that sin. How many dropping that sin today? You don't have sin in your life because you dropped it like it's hot. Come on, somebody. I'm excited. You know it's a good day when your outfit matches your beard and your hair? Man, I couldn't have planned this day any better. Man, I started turning gray when I was in my 30s, y'all. I did, I did. But you know what? I got a lot of wisdom. And I started pastoring in my 20s. Do you think that has anything to do with me graying a little bit early? No, no, that didn't have anything to do with it. Maybe a little. Okay, let's go to John chapter 1. So excited that you're here. John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. Somebody say, the Lamb of God. Amen. We're going to talk today about the Lamb of God. We're still in the the story here of John the Baptist. Last week we uh, concluded about, uh, you know, what he was talking about himself, how he was a voice. We have a a two-part message on that, so please check out the app or the website if you want to go back and listen to it. But now today we're going to get to the uh, baptism of Jesus. We're going to hear what John says about Jesus and how important it is that we see the imagery of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Everybody say the Lamb of God. Amen. Thank you very much. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's read that together. Would you highlight that for me, please, brother? When he gets to that part, look, we're going to say that together on the count of three. One, two, three. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. That's John the Baptist declaring Jesus as the Lamb of God. He continues on. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. He said, this is the one who has come after me, but he has really surpassed me because he became, he came before me. What does that mean? John thinks about the nature of Jesus, that the nature of Jesus preexisted the virgin birth. Could you all see that there? So he said, this one who has come after me, after him in what way? In the incarnation, which we'll be celebrating during the time of Christmas. The incarnation, God the Son becoming flesh, came after John the Baptist was born. That's what he means when he says, the one who comes after me. Talking about Christ and his incarnation. That event on a timeline came six months after John the Baptist. John the Baptist was six months older than the flesh of Jesus that he had received from the Virgin Mary. Can I hear an amen to that? But it doesn't stop there. He says, this one who has come after me has surpassed me because he's what? He's what? Thank you. Before me. Now, what does that mean before me? When we hear John, the gospel writer, starting at the beginning in John 1.1, we hear in the beginning, in our he, in the very beginning of all things, was who? The Word. And the Word was what? With God and the Word was God. So John, the writer of the gospel, is letting us know that John the Baptist understood this about the nature of Jesus. Now notice here in verse 31, he says, I myself did not know him. Now, if you remember in the verses prior, John the Baptist said, there is somebody among you who I cannot even untie their sandals. And that's what he even says here. He says, this is what I meant when I was saying that there was someone among you that was so great that they had surpassed me. But notice how he then says in verse 31, I myself did not know him. Now, in what way does John the Baptist mean that? John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah are cousins. Is he saying, I did not know my cousin? 
No, he knew his cousin from the point of his birth. This is one of the reasons we know abortion is a sin and it's murder. Because when John the Baptist was six months old in the womb and Mary came just having been given the immaculate conception or the, uh, uh, the, the conception of Jesus in her womb. The immaculate conception actually refers to her being virgin born, which is not true. So sometimes I misspeak there. How many know she was born a sinner like everybody else? So help me, Lord. This talks about the incarnation of Christ coming in. The Bible says that when Elizabeth saw Mary and Mary had in her womb the conception of Jesus, John the Baptist leapt. And then from that moment on, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So how could he say, I don't know him? He knew him from the time he was six months in the womb. He had had an encounter with him. And certainly at some point they had had to have spent time together. What I believe he means by this is what we're going to hear later on at the baptism when God the Father speaks about Jesus and says, this is my son. They probably did not understand how far back the nature of Jesus went. And so John is now saying, I didn't know that until I saw this happen, how far back this Messiah goes, who he really is. Because up until this point, they might have been a little bit confused. Now remember, John, the gospel writer, is telling us in the time of it happening, but he also has the advantage of knowing what's already happened. How many know John, the gospel writer, has already seen the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? So when he's retelling these stories and these narrations, he's making sure that you understand the development. So it's not like they knew everything at every point in the, in the story of Jesus. They're learning. As a matter of fact, they doubt at different times. We know Peter gets rebuked, gets called Satan. And so John the Baptist, or, or rather John the Gospel writer, is telling us how John the Baptist got to the revelation of him knowing who Jesus is. But just a little pause in this, was that even enough to keep him from doubting? No, because when he got arrested, what did he say to his followers? Go ask Jesus, who at this point he knew was virgin born. At this point, he knew was the son of God that had come before creation, that had surpassed him because he came before him. He knew that he could do miracles and all of those things. And yet in jail, because he probably thought the Messiah, this one was going to bring about a victory over Israel, he begins to doubt and says, go to Jesus and and ask him, are you the one, or should we ask, or, or should we be waiting for another? How many remember John's doubts in prison? A few of you remember that? So this is an encouragement to us that even though we have experienced great things in the things of God, we ought not to think it's strange if we ever doubt God. Don't be discouraged if in your Christian walk at different times you doubt the Lord. John the Baptist had already experienced the presence of the Lord in the womb. He grew up knowing that his, uh, his cousin was virgin born. He then probably began to understand that this is the Messiah. And then at the baptism, he, re he is given the revelation that the Messiah is actually divine and predates creation but still, he doubted when things didn't go his way, and he found himself in prison. Let's go now to verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. Now John, the gospel writer, is telling us what John the Baptist says about Jesus. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. Now we understand what that means. He's not saying, I didn't know my cousin. Of course he knew his cousin. He's not saying, I didn't have information about him. He's already been preaching that information before this baptism even happened. What he is now saying is, I didn't know him in understanding the fullness of his character. I didn't understand the depths of who my cousin really is. And I believe we could even say that when it comes to Mary and especially his brothers. Because we know at certain points, Mary is given all of this revelation, starting with the angel, then eventually some prophets as she goes to the temple and different things, the wise men and all of these wonderful things that are happening. 
And by God's grace, make sure you come for our Christmas service. We're going to have a great presentation from our children and our youth and our young adults. And then we're also going to have a powerful word. God has been speaking to me about it. But notice this. Mary at times even begins to doubt. And she begins to have conflict with Jesus because she and the siblings of Jesus, the brothers and sisters, start showing up unannounced at Jesus' ministry uh, events and starts calling Jesus out of those events to deal with issues that she has, and then she gets all up in Jesus's business. And what does Jesus say to her or tell his disciples to say to her, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? It's those who do the will of God. And then at one point, we'll see even in the book of John that the brothers of Jesus begin to mock him and say, if you're really this one that we're supposed to be waiting for, and and my brother's really God in the flesh, the Messiah, and all of these things, then why don't you go now show yourself at this feast and so all the Jewish people can worship you? How many remember his brothers mocked him? So Mary stuck her nose in places where she didn't belong, probably out of her own doubts and fear. The brothers start doubting Jesus. So we should not be discouraged when doubts and fears come into our life. This is a part of normal Christianity, but remember to doubt your doubts. And don't let your doubts remain. Speak the word of God over your doubts. And what will begin to happen is you will doubt less and begin to have more surety on the word of God. But I I want to always remind people of this, uh, this kind of practice example because sometimes people go, well, see, that just shows you that you're doing spiritual gymnastics. You're doing mental gymnastics to have this spiritual life because if even you as a pastor or John the Baptist could, could doubt and all these things, then that just shows you that you're wrong. No, doubting is a part of our human flesh that needs to be redeemed and brought under the, the power of God at the resurrection because I asked them, have you ever doubted if somebody loves you that's in your life? How many have doubted whether or not your parents loved you or your spouse loves you? How many have ever doubted if your children love you? How many have ever doubted those kinds of things? I doubt those things kind of all the time. I have deep thoughts within myself. Does my wife really love me? Does she love really who I am or does she only love what I present to her? What if she really knew these things about me, you know? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, she pretty much knows all about me. I don't have any secrets, you know? But this idea of am I lovable like this, this, is this lovable? And then I ask the same kind of people this question. Have you ever doubted your own existence? Because if you're honest with yourself, you've doubted your own existence at some point, or at least if you thought about it. Because how do you know you really exist? You could be in a virtual video game. My family just got the Oculus. We play it, and that thing has freaked me out. There's different games like Walk the Plank, and I screamed. And you're like walking a plank, and it sits in your living room. But you have this thing on that makes you think you're on a skyscraper. How many have ever played any of those virtual reality games? They'll freak you out. You'll think like you're literally there. So anyways, you know, you could be in a virtual world. This could be the game that some alien is playing on Mars. I'm playing... I'm playing Tank right now. I'm playing Anthony right now. I'm playing Jason right now. They could all just be sitting around. I'm playing Lawrence. They could be living to 2,000 years old, so playing an 80-year-old game, that could be nothing to them. They're playing you for 80 years years because they live for 2,000 years. You see how quickly we can even doubt our own existence. So the very fact that doubts come into our mind shouldn't make us uh, think that that's reality. Doubts are not reality. Reality is based in truth and fact, and that can remain after doubt. So if your mind is ever clouded with doubts, don't be discouraged. Doubt your doubts. Go back to the Word of God. Seek the truth of the Lord, and you'll be secure in your faith. So every time that I have doubted my marriage or my worth or I have doubted whether I have existed or I've doubted the things of God, and I go back and study those things, I go back and invest into my marriage, I talk to my wife, do you really love me, baby? Do you really love me inside and out? And I talk to my kids, do you really love your mom and dad? Do you know that we love you? And all those things. I begin to grow. I get out of my head and I get more into my heart and I trust what God is doing in my life. Come on, somebody say amen. So he says, I didn't know him, but in what way did he not know him? He did not know him in the vastness of who he is. Now go to uh, Philippians chapter three, just a little side note there. Even Paul says that he had surrendered, uh, Philippians chapter 4 rather, Paul said he had given up everything so that he might know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, It is chapter 3. Go to chapter 3, verse 7. Look at Paul talking about how we will always grow in our knowledge of God. As as you even read the prayers of Paul, how many have heard the prayers of Colossians or Ephesians or in different places where Paul says that I pray that you would know him more? How many have read those before? 
Okay, a few of you, I'm going to go read a few more for you. I'm going to read some for the few who don't know it. Okay, look at uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. It says, but whatever were gains to me, talking about his previous way of living before a Christian, I now consider loss for the sake of who? The sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let's read that again. Knowing who? Christ Jesus my Lord. Every one of those names means something. Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of Israel. Jesus, the Savior of the world. Lord, the great I am that I am. He said, I consider everything a loss to know the Messiah, to know the Savior, to know the great I am. Have you gotten to the point where you're bored with Jesus? I hope not because there's more to know about Jesus than there is to know about dolphins. And there's people spending their whole life learning about dolphins. There's more to know and learn about Jesus than there is about instruments and music. And people have devoted their whole life to instruments and music. There is more to know about Jesus than there is technology. And there are people who have devoted their whole life to technology. Now go to Ephesians chapter 1, just so I can encourage you with some of the prayers. Somebody say, Paul prayed for me. By Paul praying for the church, he was praying for you. That prayer, I believe, is being answered when we continue to seek God and to go after him. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at how Paul prays for the church. And that prayer, I believe, is still being answered today. Look at how he prays for us, and it's, and it's really starting in verse 3 all the way down. But let's go to verse 11. In him we were predestined. Uh, we were also chosen, having been a predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of, of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Come on, somebody. Say, for, I'm here for the praise of his glory. Say it again. I'm here for the praise of his glory. Amen. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a guaranteeing, who's guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of God's, um, the, the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now look at this right here. Now look at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the what? The spirit of what? The spirit of what? Wisdom and what? Revelation so that you may know him better. So Paul says all of these awesome things. Let's go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 11. Paul says, God has done all of these wonderful things of Ephesians, please. Ephesians 1.11, Paul says, God has predestined you and called you and has done this for the praise of his glory. Look at, I mean, this is amazing. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So these first people who believed in Christ were for the praise of his glory. But then it says in verse 13, and you also, somebody say, I'm an also. Amen. And you also were included in Christ. That means we're there a part of Christ's glory. And then looking at verse 15, he says, because of Christ and his glory and what he's doing in us, Paul is praying for the church. And these prayers still remain. When we go through our disciples every first of the month, we get a report on what disciples we had in the previous month. And we're over 160 disciples in this church. Can we give it up for Jesus? Amen. Somewhere between two to 300 in attendance, depending on who comes on what day. Last month we had a high of 280, you know, just people come and go, and sometimes you'll have less than that. But this church is growing mightily through discipleship. And whenever I look at those names and pray for, for you and your family, I then go into the epistles and pray one of the prayers of the apostles. Come on. And these are some of my favorite prayers to pray for this congregation, that you might have the spirit of of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now going back to John, he said it twice in the notes, please. He said, I did not know him. 
So in what way is he saying that? Is he saying, I didn't know a man named Jesus? Of course he knew that person. He had met him when he was in the womb. He had probably grown up with him. He had seen him coming around while he was baptizing. But in what way did he not know him? He didn't know the fullness of who he is. And when he saw this baptism, when he did it, and he saw the Spirit come down and the Father speak, this is when he knew more about Jesus than he had ever known before. And I could even say from that point on, he began to learn more and more and more about Jesus to the point that even when he was in a jail cell arrested for preaching against Herod and his adulterous relationship, when he had doubts and he sent out those disciples and they came back and testified to what they saw, he resolved those doubts doubts and learned more about Jesus than he had known before those doubts. And what those doubts had brought him to the truth of is that Jesus is going to bring his kingdom not only to Israel but to the nations and the gospel will go forth even through persecution. How many are glad John the Baptist gave his life for the kingdom? He then could rest secure and go, okay, this is part of the plan. He's not coming to conquer right now. I've got to get on God's timeline. Father, I'm coming home. Hello, somebody. Could you imagine that? I mean, this is a whole other sermon within a sermon. Just imagine that. You're John the Baptist. You have seen all these signs and wonders. Now you know that you know this is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has predated your even existence. You're thinking that the king is coming, that the war is coming. He's going to rule the nations. You're finding yourself in jail. And yet at that moment, you have to now change a little bit. Just, just tweak a little bit of your eschatology to include you dying. <laughs> That's why I talk to some of y'all who believe like me in the pre-tribulation rapture that we're not going to see the Antichrist. You might have to be, a re be ready for a little tweak of your <laughs> theology because if we're wrong and we go through the tribulation, you better keep serving Jesus. Amen. Don't nobody say to me, Pastor, you lied to me. I told you on my, on my scale of, of how sure I am about that, it's pretty low, but that's the best one I'm on right now because some of you are like, rescue me, Jesus. But if you see the Antichrist, that rescue is not coming when you think it is. If we see him, I'm just going to look at my wife and go, well, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> prepare, prepare the bunker. Get out Get out the, the oats. Get out the bottled water. We're heading out with the Amish. They're coming after us. You know what I'm saying? Come on, somebody. So John the Baptist had to tweak his theology to now include 2,000 years of church history because in his mind, Jesus the Messiah comes. This is God on earth. I have prepared the way. There's a throne coming to Jerusalem, Psalm chapter 2. He's crushing necks. He's breaking backs. He's putting the people under his kingdom. He's whipping them with a rod of iron, John the Baptist was ready for that until he got arrested and was about ready to die. Then he had a doubt saying, how is this going to work out? And Jesus said, this is going to work out. I'll see you up there. Amen. Amen. So he said, I, I didn't know him until all this happened, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Somebody say the Trinity. Did you just see the Trinity in that verse? There is the Father speaking to John the Baptist. Remember, the one who sent him. That's the Father who sent him and told him this. There's the father. The father's speaking to him. And the father said, the man, talking now about Jesus, God in the flesh, there's the son, on who you see the spirit, the Holy Spirit, come down is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Somebody say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, verse 34, John, the gospel writer, now tells us the last part of John the Baptist's testimony. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one, as it is in your NIV, but there is a variant there, and I stick with the King James, God the Son or the Son of God. Somebody say God's Son. So we'll be using that as the King James puts it out. Remember, there are variations in some translations as how we interpret certain Greek words. Now let's go back to the Lamb of God there in the previous section, please. Go back up there. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Somebody say he's the Lamb of God. Amen. Do you, do you remember the story of Abraham and his son Isaac and him being asked to sacrifice his son? 
In Genesis chapter 22, we hear the first reference to the lamb being brought up in the context of sacrifice. Here we see Abraham, after 25 years of waiting for a promised child, that God now tells him to sacrifice Isaac. Could you imagine the faith that this would take? How many know you would have some doubts at that point if you heard from God? And sadly, this has to be said in our society, when people have murdered their children because they say they have heard from God, they have heard from demonic lies or mental illness. And we need to pray that there can be wisdom and discernment among the mentally ill and the demonic versus what this story actually is. This was not a story that was repeated, nor should we look for this in everyday life. God speaking to you to sacrifice your children. Though it is something that is uh, an example to us, it's not to be repeated. How many know we're not supposed to try to walk on water because he told Peter to do it? Okay, so this is how we have to understand this and the folly that people uh, attribute to us. We as Christians deny such ridiculousness. But look at chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. This is specifically at this time to give a test to the patriarch Abraham, who is going to be the father of the Jewish people and the father of all nations, the Gentiles that get engrafted into Jesus. So amazing how we're in the book of John in first service, the book of Galatians in second service, and yet they keep intertwining and overlapping each other. I pray that those of you who are uh, only in first service will be listening to those as well because they are great lessons. So here we're learning about Abraham, and we're understanding that this came some time later after Isaac, the child of promise, has been born. Uh, God speaks to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Verse 2, then God said, take your son, your only son. Now, I want everybody to understand this. Did Abraham have another son? Yes, he did. Ishmael, Ishmael. But notice what God calls him. What does God call rather Isaac? What does he call Isaac? Your only son. That is going to be very important in understanding why Jesus is the only son of the father. When people talk about us being children of God, they would say, now we're all sons by the ton. That there isn't necessarily a difference between Jesus and us because I'm a son, he's a son, everybody's a son. They say it's sons by the tons. And so they tried to take away the uniqueness of Christ by pointing to all of the people in the Bible who have been called sons of God. Therefore, Jesus is no different in nature than all of these who have been called sons before. But notice this. Abraham, having both Isaac and Ishmael, is told that his son Isaac is his only son. So what does that mean now only? Unique, one of a kind. That is the differentiation. And that's why when, when we get into John 3.16 and we understand monogenous, mono meaning one, genus meaning kind, that he is the only begotten. We're not saying that G the father does not have other sons and or daughters, but in this specific case, we're not saying God doesn't, the father doesn't have other sons, but we're saying by Jesus being called the monogenous, the only begotten, that there's nobody like my Jesus, just like how Isaac was separated and considered different to the point he could be called an only son to Abraham. That is what Jesus is to the father. And we understand that as long as the father has been a father, the son has been a son. This unique son has been existing with the father in perfect relationship and harmony as well with the Holy Spirit. There's nobody like Jesus. Amen. But isn't that beautiful? You just learned something that we will be referring to again in the future. He says to uh, Abraham, take your son, your only unique son, the only one that has come as a child of promise through Sarah, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out uh, to the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, which day? 
their third day, something special there. But on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He told his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. How many understand the difference between singles and plurals? A single noun or a plural noun? How many know we is plural? So what is he saying right here by, by pronouncing we will worship and then we will come back to you? He believes God's going to do something. Amen? He's walking by faith. In his mind, he says, I know that God has not promised me a son that I have to sacrifice and literally kill. Something is up here, but I have to trust him to go through this. He's going to teach me something in my obedience. So stay here while we go up to worship, and we will come back. Speaking by faith, praise God. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Notice the wood is placed on him. Think of the cross being placed on Jesus. A lot of, a lot of symbology here. And he carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? How many know that would be your question if you were Isaac? Yeah, I got the wood. I see you got the knife. I see you got a fire. What are we sacrificing? Where is the lamb? This is the prophetic voice that has been heard throughout the centuries. We might not have time to get into it, but I have it referenced in the notes about the Passover lamb. And then Isaiah talking about Jesus, the servant being the lamb led to slaughter. Here, Isaac is the first one to speak out prophetically all the way into the future, even to our time. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Come on, somebody. I'm going to say it again. It's powerful. Where is the lamb? And what did John the Baptist do? There's the lamb. Oh, come on, somebody. He said, there's the lamb of God. From the time of Isaac, he's asking the question, where is the lamb? And then what does John the Baptist shout out many, many years later when he sees Jesus approach to be baptized? There is the lamb. So this is prophetic. You have to see this. You have to understand the reasons why words are used. And I don't say this insultingly, but I have to give some examples. He doesn't point at Jesus and say, here's the donkey of God. He doesn't point at Jesus and say, here's the cat of God. He uses a word that they would understand because it had been prophesied. Do you get it all the way back to the time of Abraham? That's why he says, there is the Lamb of God. Because Isaac had been asking, and the generations before had been asking, where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb for the burnt offering? And now notice the answer of Abraham, the man of faith, prophetically giving the answer. God himself will provide the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld him from me, your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. A ram is a male adult lamb. The lamb in its name represents a young child or a young newly born sheep but a ram is an adult sheep are you listening you see they had in their mind about the lamb but he's going to show them that the kind of lamb that's going to be sacrificed is going to be adult 
And it's going to come at a certain age. And so now we see he has a ram caught by its thorns. Jesus being 30 years old is the lamb of God. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Everybody say Jehovah Jireh. That's what it means. Jehovah meaning the Lord Jireh will provide or Yahweh Jireh, depending on how you want to pronounce the Lord's name. Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Going back to our notes in John, please. What a powerful illustration that we see in the scriptures. This is not an accident. That Jesus being the sacrificial lamb is going to be around the age of a ram. He is going to be the very one that answers the call to Isaac, where is the lamb? Here I am. And he even says, here I am, Father, and doing the will that you have sent me in another prophetic place. And then we see that the Father acknowledges that's who he is. As we look to the other gospels, uh, let's just go to Matthew chapter 3. The Father affirms who his Son is as being the unique and only one of his kind. In Matthew chapter 3, the Father speaks at the baptism. Looking at chapter 3, verse 17, And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Can we just take a moment to see the relief that Abraham felt in that moment? But the agony God the Father would now endure. We don't understand this enough. We oftentimes think to ourselves that we have only suffered here on earth because of this plan of salvation that God has allowed to unfold. Let me get a little bit deep for a moment. We know God knows all things, but yet he allowed us to be created knowing that we would fall into sin. So we know that God knew that a part of his plan of redemption, not having robots, but people who could freely choose and love him, a part of that plan would mean people would reject him and it would cost him his son to come and die on the cross a miserable, lonely death so that those who had once rejected him could now be saved. And so when we present that story of the gospel, understanding the beginning from the end, God's the Alpha and the Omega, he knows all things, there are some people in our generation that say, well, God is mean for doing that. Why would he allow certain people to be made and created knowing that some will even reject him? Wouldn't it have been better for him to only have made a perfect human race, those who only will ever accept him? Well, let's think about that. Would that even be possible? Would we all do better? Would any of us here do better than Adam and Eve? No. So it seems like by God giving us free will, he had to make the choice. Everybody track with me. God had to make a choice between two options. I can create things that have no free will but will always obey me. He said, I can do that in the mindset. This is, look at his mindset. So he could have made you always obey him, but you'll never have a free will. Now, would that be love and that obedience? No, because it's, you're not there by choice. When you program your computer to tell you, you it loves you, not saying you would, but if somebody would, to be weird. Are you tracking with me? Does that computer have a choice when you hit that button and it goes, I love you? No, it doesn't have a choice. You pushed the button, you made the program, you made that thing talk, and you could just push it over and over and over again. I love you, I love you. Is that real love coming from that computer? No, it's not. That's why even with Siri, they make her a little sassy. They give her about a thousand responses, and you don't know which one is coming. But it's still not love, is it? It's still not real relationship. It's just people programming her to do random things at different times. I called her a her. Programming it. See what happens, right? Transhumanism coming near you, right? Let's get back into Revelation for a moment. Half kid, but serious. <laughs> Is that what he wanted? No. So at his other choice, at his other choices, real love, real relationship. To really know Danny and Andrew, God said, I really want to know Abby. I really want to know Bethany. I really want to know Erica. I want to know her. I want her to make choices. 
I want him to make choices. Now what does he have to accept in that conclusion of that decision? What is something he is going to accept at that moment? They will break my heart and cost me my son. Going back to Abraham, we all go, wow, thank God Abraham didn't have to do that. But then the father standing back going, but I have to do that. That's something I don't think we understand the depths of. Because we think that the father was unemotional in watching his son go through that. There's a reason why the sky went black at 3 in the afternoon. Are you listening to me? There's a reason why the son cries out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was some kind of an emotional breaking of the heart, a rift, not in their nature. They couldn't separate from each other in that way. They shared the same nature. But there was a breaking of that divine unity in relationship that they had always shared the same experiences together. But now the father had to stand back and watch his son experience the pain of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, became sin for us. The agony of the father is displayed in the wrath. Everybody get this. The agony of the father for the pain that his son endured for the cross and on the cross is displayed in his wrath on sinners. You reject him? Hell. You don't think that's good enough? Hell. Do you understand? That's the wrath of the Father. This does not satisfy you. You want more sin? Hell. That's the wrath of the Father. The wrath of the Father is not generated out of anger. It's generated out of love for His Son. Come on, parents. Have you ever had to pack up the toy, shut off the video game? Well, if you're not going to appreciate it, nobody gets it. Well, if you're not going to be good in the car, we're not going to main event, Chuck E. Cheese. We're heading. Have you ever had to, out of love, bring some wrath? If you're not, if you don't want it, okay, I'm going here. Have you ever just to, I know I have, just to mess with my kids when one was disobedient and wasn't listening, I said, I'm going to serve them all ice cream in front of you right now. You're not getting any, but I'm going to serve them all ice cream. You think you crazy? I'm crazier. You're going to sit here while I make an ice cream sundae for all of them. I'm going to show you I don't owe you anything but a place to live, some air to breathe, some water. <laughs> Come on. God looks at us and says, oh, you reject him? You don't get heaven. But what I'm going to do before you go to hell, I'm going to glorify every single one of them in front of you. Read the book of Thessalonians. Read how it says, we will be glorified in the presence of our enemies. We will, watch this, we will eat a meal. He said, the Bible says he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That's how much he loves us. And I don't want to use this word that he's dependent on us, but I want to clarify and say that he acknowledges what we do because we are free will creatures. So I want to say he appreciates when we appreciate his son. The Father, and here's a word of appreciation that will bring the biblical context. Now you'll understand it. As we read it in Ephesians, go back to Ephesians 11, 1 verse 11, because it said it right there. We are to his glory when we give him glory. We become a trophy of grace when we choose the Son. And the Father goes, let, angels, man, let's give, let's give the Son some praise for bringing in some more sons and daughters here. The Son, he died like a seed, but he multiplied as he came up like a tree. Amen? Let's, 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 let's praise him for what he has done. The Father is going to say, praise the Son, angels. And we'll be a part of that praise. But the Father is going to declare praise to the Son because the Son brought redemption to a human race that was lost. 
might be for the praise of his glory. That's the appreciation of the Father towards the Son. Going back to the notes, please. I don't have time to go into all of these references, but please do. Ezekiel chapter 12, when you have time, Passover lamb. The wrath of God will pass over those who have the blood of the lamb. As I mentioned before, Isaiah 53, Jesus being prophesied would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. If you're being encouraged, can I hear an amen? Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, he's the lamb of God. He's the lamb of God. We ought not to take that lightly. It costs the Father sending his Son. It costs the Son his life. And it costs the Holy Spirit to watch all of this happen when he could have stopped it at any moment. The Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son have borne with us our suffering by watching Christ take it on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is grieved. How many heard about the Holy Spirit being grieved? And we know the Father is grieved. You know, we know these uh, persons in the God, uh, in the Godhead, in the God nature, in the triune nature of God have emotions and have been pained by what we as humans have done, but yet they rejoice in what the Son has done. Now look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And here is a fact. Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness. That's why he had to come and be the lamb. Because who among us could give the blood? Who among us could give the pure spotless blood? No one. No one was able to do it. Now, somebody might be able to come up with an argument and say, well, if Jesus was able to be born into a perfect body, couldn't he have done that again or done that prior like how he had made Adam and Eve perfect? Couldn't he have made other perfect humans? He could have, but how many know this would be going on for a long time? Take 2,442 angels. This is Adam 2,442. Let's see how this one does. Waited nine months, virgin birth. We bypassed the sin nature of Adam. Oh, they sinned on their fifth birthday. Okay. Seven years old, they sinned. Okay. Let's try Eve 20,932. How many know by God, in his wisdom, he knew if Adam and Eve didn't do it, in the Garden of Eden, nobody was going to do it especially living outside of the Garden of Eden. If humanity had the best chance, Adam and Eve had the best chance in the garden, perfect environment, perfect relationship, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with God, even with the animals there was perfection. She didn't think it's strange that the thing was talking. I mean, that just shows it had to be something going on there. You know, either they were already talking to them or they were, you know, they were just talking to them, but they wouldn't talk back or they were talking to the animals were talking. Wouldn't that be strange? But it, it, could be, it could be biblical. So they could have already been talking. Part of the curse is they lost their voice. Wouldn't that be something? We get to heaven and they're all just talking to us like we're in some cartoon. And then we're freaked out by it. And God's like, what do you think? You made a cartoon with a talking animal. You don't think I could have made one that actually did it? You know, in that one time, you know, with the prophet, the donkey talks, God's like, hey, I can do this whenever I want. I can let them talk. Like, really, it's not that big of a deal. They have a brain. They have vocal cords. Why can't they? they have, most of them have tongues, these kind of animals. Even the little snake has a little tongue. They can talk, right? Why couldn't they talk, in other words? Before we get off into, uh, you know, fantasy land here, think about that. Perfect relationship with animals. Perfect relationship with God, Adam and Eve. Perfect relationship with their environment. Perfect relationship with each other, and yet they sin. And so now what we understand is that God himself will provide the lamb by himself becoming the lamb. We can now complete Abraham's thought by knowing what John the Baptist said. God himself will provide the lamb by himself being the lamb. How? By the relationships. For God, talking about the Father, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, God the Son, right? That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so now uh, people have looked at this and they said, well, then that means when he came as God, he must not have really been man. He probably had some kind of advantage. He probably was just partially man, not fully man. But the Bible makes it very clear. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2, that we defend both natures in 100% or what we would say in fullness. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is careful to let us know that when Jesus came in the flesh, moving on down to around verse 5, please, we see that Jesus was in every way like us. So the way we explain this, how would he still be God and yet be like us in every way? 
We believe he did not use his divine privileges. That's a term that we use, divine privileges. So though I have the privilege as being a 44-year-old man that's kind of strong because I got muscles, I have this privilege. I don't use it when I'm wrestling my three-year-old Titus. I'm still a man when I wrestle him. I've still got muscles when I wrestle him, but I do not use the privilege of that muscle in that, in that fight. Everybody tracking with me? So God can be in the flesh as fully God, fully God. There he is in the flesh, but he is not using his privileges as God. Look at what it says in Philippians 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So whatever he did on earth, he did not do it as God to his own advantage. Because if he used something to his own advantage out of his divine nature, he could not relate to you and I in our temptation and therefore would not have been a perfect lamb. The perfect lamb needed to identify with human temptation exactly as a human yet without sin. That was the requirement. So how did Jesus live without sin? Was it because he did it as God? No, he did it as a man relying upon God. That's why the Holy Spirit came upon him at the baptism. That's why he begins to say in John, I don't do anything unless I see my father do it. Because do you have the advantage to know what God is doing before he tells you what he's doing? No, you don't have that advantage. How many have to wait for God to tell you something? And you have to be obedient to that then, right? Like, but you just can't make it up and say, now God told me to do it. As a man, John, uh, Jesus could have known everything in the mind of God, everything pertaining to the future, and yet he limited it. So anything he ever knew about the woman at the well is because the father said, I want you to know about her and her husbands and the issues she's had. He didn't walk around knowing everything about everybody. He only knew whenever the father turned it on, just like he would for a man with the gifts of the spirit. Does everybody understand that? That's why he's living as a mere man. He gets tired. Well, God doesn't get tired, but Jesus gets tired. Why is that? Because he didn't have the advantage to be like a Superman and not get tired. He's not flying around the matrix like Neo here, okay? He's not living in a cartoon world. He doesn't use this power to his advantage. He can only live as a man and rely upon the Father. Now, going back to our notes, that's why when he comes into the flesh... He comes to be baptized, not because he has sin, but because he's going to set the example as a man. And another passage in the synoptics, John argues with him and says, man, I can't baptize you. You're not a sinner. You need to baptize me. I'm a sinner. And then John, uh, Jesus says back to John, I'm not doing this for sin. I'm doing it for righteousness' sake. I don't want there to be anything held against me. And that's the same reason why he was circumcised. That's the same reason why he eats. Whether he's doing religious duties or living as a natural man in the world where you sleep and you eat and all those things, it's because he has now fully identified as a man. Now going to verse 32, why did he do that in our notes? He did that so that he might become the Lamb of God so that he might die on the cross for our sins. And does it stop with only forgiveness of sins? No, it goes to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Go to Psalm, um, let's go to Daniel. No, I'm going to skip ahead. Let's go to, let's go to Isaiah 44.3. Vinny, would you come, please? Those other scriptures are encouraging too, but I'm going to go a little bit quickly here. How many are encouraged today by the Lamb of God? Where is the Lamb? John says there's the Lamb, pointing to Jesus. Why is there a hell? Because we reject the Lamb of God. Don't reject the Lamb of God. Now, when John said he, talking about Jesus, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, do you think that's something a mere man can do? Could a mere prophet be the one that could baptize people in the Holy Spirit? No, when you go back to the scriptures, you begin to see that the Lord, God, is the only one who pours out the Spirit. Just for an example, looking at Isaiah 44, 3, the Lord is speaking. You just go up to uh, verse 1 so everybody can see the Lord is speaking here. He says, but now listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the who says? The Lord says this. Now to verse 3, for I, speaking as the Lord, I, the Lord, will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out whose spirit? My spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Notice only 
God has the right to pour out His Spirit. I, the Lord, will pour out my Spirit. Now notice the audacity of this uh, statement of Jesus. Go to John chapter 7, skipping ahead to verse 37. Remembering the gospel of John has a flow and a thought. We're supposed to connect what we hear to later on in the story, which we'll get to. But notice the audacity of this in John 7, 37. Jesus at a festival where they have poured out water to uh, represent the one day when the, the Lord pours out the Spirit, literally in a fulfillment of Isaiah 44, Look at what Jesus does on the last and greatest day of the festival. This is the day they poured out water saying, we're waiting for you, Lord, to pour out your spirit. Here's a symbol. We're pouring out the water, waiting for your spirit. On that day when they are pouring out water, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Think about that. They're pouring out water saying, we're waiting for the Spirit. And Jesus says to them, literally, it could not be more clear, come drink from me. I will give you the drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now notice John, the gospel writer. Come on, it's all right to get happy. The gospel writer now interjects in the story in verse 39. John wants to make sure we don't understand how powerful this moment was because he's been building on this pouring out of the water and the spirit theme since John being born of the water and the spirit. John chapter 3, since John chapter 1, that he's going to pour out the spirit. He wants to make sure we get it. So John the apostle says, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been what? Glorified. Go to Joel chapter 2, verse 28. How many know the Lamb of God has come to pour out the Spirit of God? How many have received him as a Savior and now want to receive him as a baptizer in the Holy Ghost? Hallelujah. Being filled to overflowing where you are now a source of God's Spirit to others. Rivers will flow through you, but they don't come from you. You're not the source. God the Son is the source. How many have heard this before in some good Pentecostal preaching? The Lord is speaking. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on how many people? On all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I thank God going back to the notes that he's not just the Lamb of God, but he's also the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He is truly the unique Son of God, the Chosen One. There's nobody else like him. When we think about all that we've gone through in our lives, is there a better solution to our problems? Sometimes, you know, you may come to a church like this and you're like, Pastor, I want you to talk more about my problems. Five steps to healthy relationships, 10 steps to prosperity. That's what the other guys do, Pastor. If, if me preaching on Jesus being the Lamb of God does not give you a thousand steps to success, I don't know what will. Everything you will ever do in life, not saying it's not important to get into the details, but is related to your sinful self being changed and rearranged into a saint of God. It doesn't matter how many self-help programs I put a pig through. It's still a pig that likes to wallow in the mud. It doesn't matter how many times you try to change that pig. It is still a pig. And without Christ, we are filthy. We are wretched. But by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, we're washed as white as snow. We're made into the sheep of God. After the Lamb of God has died and bore our sins, we who were once goats now become lambs, made new creations. And then once again, if me telling you that the Holy Spirit baptizing you and filling you and giving you rivers doesn't give you a million and one solutions to all of your problems, I don't know what will. Because it's by the Spirit of God that we get the wisdom of God. It's by the Spirit of God that we get the knowledge of God. 
Oh, to God that we would allow the Holy Spirit to talk to us in our marriages so that we might be better husbands and wives. That we would allow the Holy Spirit to talk to us in our families that we might be better mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. That by the power of the Holy Spirit that whatever spear we go into in the, in the secular world that we bring the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the power of God, the transformation of God. Amen? Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? As you are in an attitude of prayer, I want to pray for you. That if you don't know Jesus as the Lamb of God slain for your sins, that you right now where you're at will stand in a moment, but where you're at would repent of your sins before God right now and say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, forgive me. If Jesus has been the Lord and Savior of your life, but you've been living in sin, and you have been, as the Bible says, disgracing the blood of Jesus by being a Christian but not living any different than the world, ask the Lamb to forgive you to wash you as white as snow. Just a few moments and then we'll, we'll stand up and begin to worship and be dismissed. But I just wanted in an attitude of prayer without any distractions for us to examine our hearts before the Father to make sure that we're honoring the Lamb of God. Lamb of God, wash away my sins. Even as a pastor today, any sin that I have done against my family in an impatience, in anger, any lust of my heart, any greed, wash me, cleanse me. A few moments, Christians, make sure your heart is as white as snow. We've sung about it in communion today. What can wash me as white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you've not known Jesus before, let this cleansing come for the first time. You don't have to be religious. You just have to want a relationship with him. Call out his name. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, save me. Father, I pray that every person here will know you as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that you were the plan of God. You were never the backup. You were always the plan of the Father so that his creation could honor and love him and have a choice to be in a relationship. We honor you today as the Lamb of God. If you do honor him as the Lamb of God, would you stand up today and bless him with me? Let's just stand up. Give him a hand clap of praise. Hallelujah. We love you, Father, for sending the Son, Son for coming, and the Holy Spirit for rebirthing us. If you would like prayer as we get ready to dismiss, feel free to come. But before we do, I would like you, if you truly have asked Jesus to be your Savior, you've received him as the Lamb of God, to raise your hands with me and ask him to pour out his Spirit on you right now.